The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Ed Rooksby to discuss reform, revolution and the question of how the left should relate to the state. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow the pod on both Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Ed is a tutor in politics at Ruskin College in Oxford and he's currently working on a book entitled Taking Power, Reform, Revolution and Socialist Strategy. In January, the journal Critique published an article by Ed that formed the basis of our discussion. It's entitled Structural Reform and the Problem of Socialist Strategy Today. You can also follow Ed on Twitter. He's at Ed Rooksby. Your article for Critique centres on the questions to how we might go beyond merely reforming capitalism and moving instead towards a rupture with the system that would enable the establishment of socialism. Before we go into the details of that question, I wonder if you could say something as to why you think it is insufficient and undesirable to fix social democracy as the limit of our political horizon. Well, social democracy, in my view, is inherently limited and not enough. So I'm not at all hostile to social democracy. In fact, um, in under post-war conditions, it was extremely successful, made a lot of people's lives much better. But the kind of the core problem for it is that, for me, it's based on the mitigation of uh, the distributional effects of market forces and not the replacement of capitalism. Um, and as such, it's dependent on um, the, uh, the, the functioning of a capitalist economy on its own terms. So in, t- in terms of growth, when capital um, is growing in healthy ways, it can afford uh, various concessions, and that's the time at which social democracy can flourish. But when capitalism goes into crisis, when profits are squeezed, um, those reforms that social democrats have put into place in the past or want to put into place will be uh, squeezed, That they'll be... Um, much less kind of space to implement them and often they'll be reversed and so that's what you see historically if you look at um, the post-war conditions after after the second world war when um, social democratic kind of you know the Keynesian consensus was put into place though those reforms were put into place in quite peculiar historical conditions based on um, a very long and deep uh, capitalist boom that lasted for quite a long time but as soon as that those conditions um, started to, to deteriorate uh, deteriorate by the 1970s. That's precisely the time when you see uh, social democracy uh, run into problems and it's when uh, the neoliberal counteroffensive begins and the welfare state is progressively stripped back. So the key problem is that, that social democracy is, is the hostage of, of the logic of capitalism, if you like. Um, and I'm not sure that there's the the space, if you like, uh, today um, 
to implement uh, some sort of full-blooded social democracy. I don't think we live in the same political, economic, institutional conditions that existed in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and besides, um, social democracy, even in its most full-blooded, leaves in place what for me are the core um, dysfunctions or injustices of, of capitalism. And amongst those, I'd say uh, that the key ones are that, that capitalism is, uh, imposes limits on the extent to which we can have democracy. So under capitalism, we can have, of course, parliamentary democracy, which is brilliant, um, but we can't have economic democracy. Uh, and, and, and in most areas of our lives, at most times, most of us don't really have that much democratic control over the conditions of our own existence, which is a core um, problem for capitalism, in my view. Other problems is that capitalism um, can't exist without constantly throwing up um, inequality within and between nations. Um, and related to that, it also means that for most people, the vast majority of people actually under, under capitalism, even under in, in quite wealthy capitalist economies, um, people live rather stunted lives, often lives of drudgery and, and lives in which they never really get a chance to develop their own talents and to flourish as, as human individuals. I mean, most of us work in jobs that we don't like and most people don't really enjoy going to work. Most people don't get to do what they'd like to do, don't get to be creative. And that's, I think... Um, um, a sort of a, a real um, a moral problem with capitalism. Um, and lastly, the, the economic logic of capitalism is one that uh, is inherently unstable. Um, it's a logic of, of booms and busts, and I don't think that can be um, purged from the system. Um, and it's also a logic of uh, perpetual growth. I mean, capitalism is based on the logic of uh, the, the sort of the core uh, imperative of capital accumulation, um, and it's not really based, therefore, on a human logic. Capitalism becomes um, an end in itself, or capital accumulation becomes an end in itself, uh, and humans become the servants of that end, and that sort of inverts the the the, the relationship that ought to exist. This is one of the moral claims that humans uh, should be. Uh, the masters and the economic system should be the servant of human needs not and not humans being the servants of the economic system. In your article in Critique, you point out that in the current era, all the sort of major left-wing parties and movements combine parliamentary struggle with social movement politics, whether that's Labour under mm. Corbyn, Podemos in Spain, um, Syriza in Greece, at least before the capitulation to the EU institutions. And you also point out that all these parties have a significant number of members who view social democratic reforms as a step to transcending or rupturing with capitalism. Could you say something about the political consciousness of members of uh, these parties? Yeah. Um, so, as you say, I mean, I think the, the key characteristic of the, of the left wing formations and the support they've built up, the kind of mobilised support they've built up is that um, a combination of electoral tactics with social movement um, forms of organisation, um, and I think there's there's a kind of um, an inevitability about that. That seems to be the concrete form that um, relatively radical challenges to the existing um, 
you know, kind of distribution of power, the existing system um, takes. Um, and I, I think these, certainly the support for these groups, if you like the electorate or the foot soldiers, uh, start from a sort of left social democratic position. Um, so I'm not sure that anyone seriously amongst that mass support is 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 thinking consciously about you know smashing the system or in anything in anything in, in more than vague terms about overthrowing capitalism. Um, I think what they're trying to do is to resist um, the kind of offensive of neoliberalism and just to assert um, quite concrete, immediate demands in relation to improving their own lives and the lives of their families and the lives of the communities around them. Um, but I think that asserting those kinds of demands and, and, and certainly organising in the way that they organise, which is much more democratic than traditional social democracy, if you like, as it became at least in the 20th century, um, that tends to, it has a kind of internal radical dynamic that tends to push beyond the limits of social democracy. And I guess those limits are that social democrats, um, you know, in the the definition that we have of that term today, because originally it was something else, but social democracy came to mean um, amelioration of capitalism, of um, building a capitalism with the human face, you know, of, of, of running it in a in a better way. I think that's really if you like, the consciousness of most people, um, probably inevitably. Um, but the, the trick is to, without necessarily engaging in some kind of deception or a politics of exposure, which I'm very suspicious of, is working with that kind of consciousness and with those forms of organisation and seeing how we can push them forward um, in order to sort of reveal the limits of social democracy and at the same time build up the psychological, material, political resources to push beyond them um, in a way that I don't think the classic revolutionary perspectives actually manage to engage with very well. In the uh, in the article, one of the main focuses is on the question of the state. And, you know, this is a very sort of uh, everyday word. It's used in a very sort of routine yeah. manner, but it's not always clear what is, is meant by it. So... Um, for one thing, what we understand as the state kind of changes over time. So the state in the post-war era is a much vaster thing than it was in the early 20th century. There's also yeah. disagreement within the Marxist tradition about what parts of society we should conceive of as the state. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of people like uh, Althusser, who described you know, the churches and the school and the media as being ideological state apparatuses when most people would conceive of those as being part of, of civil society. So what do we mean when we talk about the state? Well, I, really good question. I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of that sort of Althusserian um, move when you talk about ISAs. And, it, and also Gramsci talks about something similar when he talks about the integral state. I mean, there's something to that, of course, but... Uh, one of the things that Ralph Miliband pointed out in his debate with Polansis is there's, there's a sort of a, a danger there in, wh in which you, if you say that everything um, that is concerned with reproduction um, of society is in itself therefore part of the field of the state, it tends to it tends to create a, 
a way of thinking that that brings the danger of thinking that an, another form of state, a worker state, or whatever you want to call it, uh, would also encompass um, ISAs. And and there's a sort of slightly dangerous conflation of there are problems with this division, but we we can use the term the state and civil society. I think in a way that makes some kind of sense. And I think if you you conflate those, it brings all sorts of dangers and the kind of historical forms that those dangers have manifested themselves in um are, you know quite obvious in terms of the soviet union and the monolithic you know um soviet state so what do we mean when we talk about the state i mean that i don't know <laughs> that is the is the is the um the honest answer but i think we've got useful resources to draw on um so i think it's more than that sort of classic Leninist um, perspective, which is drawn from Engels, Marx and Engels, about the state as being essentially a body of armed men. Um, it is, but it's it's also more than that, and it's clearly become much more than that in the course of the you know second part of the 20th century, or, or over the totality of the 20th century. Um, so I think the resources, the best resources we have to, to draw on are Polansis in his later work, State Power Socialism, I think is unsurpassed in terms of thinking about the state as a field of power. Um, and there are also interesting um, work done by theorists like Eric Olin Wright on this sort of question. Uh, and also Fred Bloch, who actually set himself up as a an opponent to Poulant-Sassian notions of relative autonomy, but I think where he ends up is actually coming up with a very good explanation of what the relative uh, relative autonomy of the state actually pivots on, um, which for Bloch is the notion of um, structural, uh, the structural power of capital or business confidence. So what Bloch argues is that uh, fundamentally what makes the capitalist state a capitalist state. It's not the only thing, but the fundamental thing is that it relies on um, capitalist investment. It relies on, you know, in order to manage um, a, a modern society, uh, you need to manage the economy in such a way that encourages continued and increasing uh, investment from private investors. And that's why it tends to act in the long-term interests of capital uh, and acts as a kind of ideal collective capitalist. Uh, and that's what also allows it to go against the short-term uh, interests of particular fractions of capital in order to sort of, because uh, it's got to keep its eye on the overall healthiness of the economy and overall growth rate. So I think there are lots of resources that we can draw on. Uh, I think that um, we can probably um, combine those sorts of perspectives in quite interesting ways. Um but I think that we we need to get beyond the sort of stark counterposition between the general kind of classic reformist position, which is that the state is a, an instrument of power that can be used by working class forces just as much as capitalist ones, versus the Leninist perspective, which is that the state is wholly and essentially bourgeois in its very kind of essence and therefore needs to be overthrown and it can't be used in any kind of direct sense by socialist forces i think that's that sort of counterposition has has created a a sort of sterile dichotomy over the last century or so
Um, you've already mentioned the Greek Marxist theorist uh, Nikos Palantzas and his conception of the state. Um, I wonder if you could just flesh that out a little bit more, and especially with regard to how his understanding of the state contrasts with the Leninist perspective. Well, Palantzas um, reconceptualizes the state um, or state power more specifically as um, a kind of terrain of struggle. So he thinks of the state or wants us to think about the state in terms of something analogous to Marx's um, conceptualization of capital. So it's, it's a social relation, essentially. Um, and Palantzas wants us to think about the way in which the state is, um, is kind of a, a fractured terrain uh, or a battlefield on which different class forces um, operate and this struggle is a struggle on the terrain of the state and a struggle to modify the institutional structure of the state what it calls its institutional materiality and in more concrete terms what what um, Palazzo is getting at um, is the observation uh, that certainly by the second half of the 20th century the state is no longer simply clearly a tool of capital you know it sort of it provides various welfare functions um the ranks of the state have been expanded in terms of uh, civil servants um who it's very hard to classify at lower levels as you know simply um agents of bourgeois power um there are labor struggles that traverse the state most obviously when state employees go on strike uh in the public sector um, and it's, no, it's, it's clearly no, no longer the case that the state is merely uh, an instrument of oppression. Um, it's something much more complex than that. So Polansis wants us to think about the way in which any kind of challenge to capitalist power uh, is likely to be reflected um, in some way within that institutional terrain of the state. You know, there's, there's clearly that the... the chance of um, state employees broadly defined not just civil servants but um, firefighters uh, teachers nurses and so on um, being part of that movement for radical reform from within the structures of the state itself and there's also clearly the possibility of uh, some form of left-wing government being elected to power within the sort of you know, the parliamentary institutions of the state and acting to try to reconfigure state power from within like that. Uh, So in State Power Socialism, his final book, um, and in the final chapter there, uh, and also in various interviews he did at the time, he he tries to rethink the classic um, Leninist vision of um, a revolutionary crisis or a dual power crisis um, and argues against what he thinks is the Leninist view, which is that that confrontation will basically run between uh, the state on the one hand as the representatives in a sort of political force of um, the concentration of capitalist power on the one hand versus a mass movement embodied in Soviets and street demonstrations and so on on the other. And has this vision, an interesting vision of the way in which this 
fragmentation, counterposition, and polarization will kind of traverse the field of the state itself. So that the the sort of the crisis of dual power, in fact, um, passes through the field of the state itself, and you're likely to see um, the state itself being you know marked by these sorts of alternative forms of power and these these these, these oppositions. Um, which I think is a much more realistic and sort of intuitively um, believable idea of what a some kind of radical challenge to capitalism would look like today. Um, and interestingly, it also corresponds quite closely with um, the sort of closest things we've had um, in recent years to revolutionary crises, where in each case, in most cases at least, uh, you see some form of interaction, not necessarily always harmonious, but some sort of interaction between a left government and um, 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 sort of mobilised forces of people outside the state too. Uh, I guess the classic example of that is uh, Chile under Allende, where there, you know, there are various sorts of just-so stories about this process from the Leninist left that tend to see it as the ultimate you know, proof that in their words, the reformist strategy can't possibly work. But what you actually see in the in Chile in 1970, 1973, um, is a very interesting dynamic developing between a radical government and a mass movement, which sort of um, is radicalised and mobilised by that government, not necessarily to its liking, but uh, but the movement of dual power and the the movement of, of workers' power that emerges in Chile in 1972, 1973 particularly, um, wouldn't have existed without the election of the popular unity government. So and that's the kind of context in which Palantzis is writing too in the late 70s, thinking about those sorts of developments and trying to think about a, a revolutionary strategy fit for the late 20th century and for us today too. So coming up to a more recent example... In the article, you talk about uh, the situation in Greece. So in 2015, the Syriza uh, far-left party, or, or, or really a coalition of parties, comes to power. Um, the first and only instance of a radical left government coming to power in Europe in the post-financial crash era. And its, it's eventual uh, capitulation to the EU was taken by, by Leninists and also by uh, centrist social democrats as evidence of the folly of attempting any sort of parliamentary road to socialism. But in your article, you're, you're, you're relatively sympathetic to Syriza and in particular to the, the left platform, which is a sort of minority mm. position within the party associated with uh, Stathis Kouvalakis in particular. Could you explain why you don't share that um, kind of disdain for Syriza that's uh, you know very common on the European left now? Yeah, I mean, I'm critical of the leadership of, of Syriza, and it's 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 pretty impossible to defend um, what Tsipras did. Um, however, um, I think that the there's a, there's a rather simplistic story being told about the lessons that we draw from the Syriza experience, you know, experience. Um, and those lessons I think that we should draw are quite different to um, the ones being drawn by um, the classical Leninist um, tradition. And the lesson I think we need to, to draw is that um, there simply wasn't a concrete alternative um, to Syriza um, at the time, um, and the 
the groups that, that kept their, dif- their distance from Syriza and were critical of its electoralism um, made very little impact on the political situation at all. Groups like the, the Antarsia uh, and also the KKE, very different, but they had the, the, a kind of a similarity in common, which was the rejection of the, the parliamentary strategy of Syriza. Um, and I think that that was in, in, in effect a, a sort of... Um, it was to reject the possibility of any advance. It was a kind of um, a, a sort of revolutionary pl- um, uh, purism, which didn't manage to actually advance any feasible, concrete alternative to the path being plotted by Syriza, which was broadly, you know, we build up support um, in order to elect a left government, and then we we see what we can do from from there. We try to act on people's immediate demands. We try to alleviate the suffering of austerity uh, in Greece, and um, we try to build up some kind of strength within an outside parliament. As it happens, of course, Syriza very quickly capitulated, although they were in really incredible pressure. You know, it's it's hard to think what anybody else might have done, to be honest, um, in Tsipras's uh, and more and earlier Varoufakis's positions. But there were... Uh, there was an alternative current within Syriza, the left platform, as you mentioned, who, who did come up with um, a, an alternative to the sort of capitulation course of the leadership. And their vision was to try to, to harness the implicit radicalism within uh, the support for, for Syriza um, and to try to to try to, 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 to radicalise that movement from within. So it wasn't about rejecting the very nature of, or the very, the very um, tactic of, of taking state power. It was, they, they grasped that and they said, we need to have a left government, but we also need to find ways of um, empowering the mass movement. So the critique of people like Kuvlakis and so on uh, was that Syriza were captured by the sort of, a logic of um, elite uh, decision-making behind closed doors. What Theresa did is that, you know, they, they won the elections and the first thing they did was to to engage in um, elite negotiations with representatives from the Troika and so on. When um, that the effect of that was to was to kind of demobilise the, the masses. It was sort of an anti-democratic uh, course of action, not necessarily... Um, deliberately on the part of the, of the leadership, but an alternative course of action might have been to um, try to further empower the, the mass movement, ordinary Greek people, and to build up a, a base of support um, in the grassroots that would have been able to actually provide that government with a with the strength outside of parliament, outside of those um, closed-door negotiations to actually uh, resist um the power of the, of the troika and the power of international and domestic capital. There's no guarantee that that kind of that strategy would have provided any sort of different outcome, but it's likely that if that had been the dominant mode of thinking within Syriza, uh, something different might have happened uh, after the the referendum. You know, the Oxy referendum, which seemed to show um, massive degree of support amongst the Greek population. Um, to radicalise the agenda. Um, people like Kouvalakis um, and, and um, Stathis um, uh, Lapovitsas too, Kostas Lapovitsas, 
um, argue that Greece had no option but to um, to leave the euro. I think they're probably right about that. The trouble is that um, it, it looks like the vast majority of the Greek population didn't want that. They wanted some kind of reform within while staying in the eurozone. But I think that a more radical course of action, um, which was about building up sort of democratic capacity amongst people, might have been able to shift um, the terms of that sort of general consensus. It might have made people start to think about the ways in which um, resisting austerity um, necessitated uh, more more radical measures than the usual parliamentary channels. So. To cut a long story short, I think that there was the potential within Syriza of kind of working with the dynamic of that of that movement uh, to have radicalised it from within. Um, and the fact that that um, strand of, of thought within Syriza didn't win uh, that struggle, I don't think there was anything inevitable about that. In fact, I think there's something quite ho- hopeful about that if we think about what similar movements in the, in the future what possibilities they might provide, because it seems to me that if there is going to be another radical challenge to um, capitalist power um, in the near future, it will probably take the form of something like Syriza. And if it does so, it will also likely throw up uh, a more radical um, strand or fraction within that group too, who we might hope to, uh, to push forward. The kind of elitist sort of managerialism of, of Syriza in government. I suppose a critic of, of Syriza might say, well, this was the the outcome of going into government, that it's sort of it's it's the exigencies of, of, of being a government forces you to behave in this manner. Whereas would you be more arguing that these kind of managerialist sort of tendencies were already there within Syriza and in fact were dominant within the party? And it's for that reason that it didn't go down this other path that you describe as a, as a possibility. Yeah, they, they were clearly there. Um, there was always going to be a battle within Syriza between, if you like, the, the social democratic um, dynamic within that party and the more radical dynamic. And whoever won that battle uh, was, was, was a matter of contingency. It wouldn't necessarily, I think, have gone one way or the other, but there clearly is too. I mean, you're right. There is a there is a logic imposed by there is a logic of parliamentarism, which tends to produce um, a, a sort of an activist elite and a passive majority who are reduced to you know a sort of um, uh, voting fodder um, and whose role is merely to cast a ballot in an election and then to wait for the leaders to sort things out for them. That's, um, I think that's an inescapable dilemma of any movement which is trying to change the system. Uh, I mean, if we reject the, the possibility or the, or the likelihood of um, some sort of, you know, revolutionary challenge to capitalism, which doesn't in some way pass through the parliamentary institutions, which isn't reflected at the level of um, electoral support for a political party. And I, I find it very hard to imagine um, this sort of development happening in advanced capitalist democracies. So if we reject the, the possibility of that sort of 1917 um, redux situation, um, then we're, we're left with trying to think through 
the dilemmas, limitations, dangers, pitfalls of a different sort of strategy. Um, and the thing is, I don't think there are any easy answers. I mean, they're, 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 we know by now that there isn't any sort of road to socialism which is going to be easy. You know, there's no there's no easy road to socialism, no sure road to socialism. In fact, we don't even know if there is one or if socialism's even possible. Um, all we've got is the the knowledge that we need to work with existing tendencies, existing resources. You know, we need to build on concrete uh, developments and to to find a way to to push that process forward um, in what can't be anything other than an experimental process. So there are clear limits and dangers to any form of parliamentary strategy, even if it's not the sort of classic social democratic one. Um, and this is something that um, Eurocommunist parties found in the 1970s. It's what other movements have found, it's what, what Syriza found too. Um, but I just don't think there are any easy answers. Could you say something about Eurocommunism? Because I think it's a, um, you know, a sort of a political tendency that uh, is is lo- is largely sort of forgotten and not necessarily mm. very well thought of either. Yeah, well, it was a really interesting and complex development in Western European communist parties that sort of came to fruition, if you like, in the in the late 1970s. Um, and it was a sort of a complicated mixture of different strategies, different aims, um, and different processes uh, that weren't all necessarily very admirable. Um, so on the one hand, you have, after the Second World War, the sort of classic Euro-communist strategy emerged in the PCI, the Italian Communist Party, uh, and also to some extent in the Spanish Communist Party as, as its way of trying to, um, to to build an alliance against um, the Francoist dictatorship in Spain, and in a more muted form in France, um, a much more Stalinist-oriented uh, Communist Party in France, which kind of in, which which integrates Euro-communist ideas in a much more problematic way than the, the Italians do. But it emerges mainly in the Italian Communist Party after the Second World War, leaders, uh, with Otogliati being the Italian Communist Party leader after the Second World War, being instrumental. Um, and what Togliati seems to be doing is to, on the one hand, balancing uh, orders from Moscow, um, you know, the, the Stalinist strategy of um, seeking to um, defend the, the foreign policy interests of, of, of the Stalinists at the time by not antagonising the Western powers after the Second World War. So what Tagliati is basically ordered to do at the end of the Second World War is to prevent any sort of um, confrontation between the very considerable forces of uh, the left in Italy and the Allied powers, because Stalin doesn't want to fall out with them. So Togliati is trying to balance that with trying also to carve out a strategy to um, to build up socialist power in Italy at the end of the Second World War, in, in the, the context where the Communist Party could actually see itself as 
part of a coalition. In fact, it was part of a coalition governing Italy for a couple of years after the end of the Second World War. So it's partly a strategic development within the sort of parameters of Stalinism. But on the other hand, it's also a, a real, and I think a, um, a genuine attempt to engage with uh, the conditions of, of of liberal democracy in advanced capitalist countries and an attempt to think past um, the limitations of uh, the Leninist, the classic Leninist strategy, which um, people like Togliati and later Berlinger and others, um, I think with some credibility, a lot of credibility, say it's just, it's just not transposable. We can't think about the change over to socialism in Italy uh, looking very much like what it looked like in Russia in 1917. And they're also trying to um, trying to genuinely integrate um, a, a respect for civil liberties into Communist Party practice. They're trying to think about how do we how do we move away from the worst aspects of Stalinism, you know, the one party state, um, secret police activities, the banning of all opposition, the subsumption of civil society into, into the state completely. So there's a kind of a complex set of manoeuvres going on here with some sort of good faith manoeuvres, if you like, of trying to adjust um, radical strategy to the conditions of advanced liberal democracy on the one hand, and also trying to balance that against the, um, uh, the sort of realpolitik of Stalinism uh, on the other, and I think you can you can separate out different um, kind of strands of Eurocommunism. So there there are the right Eurocommunists, uh, such as Amandola and Berlinger himself as well, who start to um, take the Communist Party more and more in the direction of classic social democracy. So they shed all the sorts of revolutionary. Um, radicalism that the PCR used to have um, and they argue for things like an anti-monopoly alliance which is a sort of a slightly b a bad faith argument about how the communist party needs to build up um, an alliance between the working class and the middle class but also uh, with progressive capitalists um, against the uh, the big bad monopolies and finance capitalism in, in a way that doesn't really make much sense um, empirically on the other hand, you've got um, a left strand within Eurocommunism, uh, exemplified by Nikos Polansis, I think, in the most advanced forms, where there is actually a, a genuine attempt to um, retain some sort of revolutionary radicalism. There's a, an attempt to think about the way in which reform uh, could actually lead to a, a really revolutionary situation. So it's not the abandonment of um, the original goals of the party of, of socialism, it's a way to update them in the hands of the Eurocommunist left. And I think it's the Eurocommunist left uh, that still speaks to us today. I, I think that the resources that people like Poulansas and others, and people on the peripheries of Eurocommunism, like Andre Gordes in the late 60s, um, they're very creative attempts to, to think through the interaction between um, government and mass movement, um, between... Uh, liberal liberties um, and liberal forms of politics and socialism um, to think through the the interaction, the kind of dialectical interaction between reform and revolution 
of change from above and change from below that uh, I think is is unsurpassed. And I think it's uh, some uh, those are resources that we need to go back to today. I think. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about Andre Gortz. So in the article, you you describe how he uh, talks about um, the concept of non-reformist reforms. This idea that you can implement reforms which in themselves help to lay the basis for further struggles and that they um, exacerbate the contradictions within within the state and and and, and yeah lay the basis for, for for winning further gains and for disaggregating the forces of of, uh, of the ruling class mm. so I wonder if you could say something about about that but but I also wonder after hearing what you were saying about uh, about Chile and uh, and Greece, does this suggest that in 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 those countries, in those circumstances, it was the absence of a proper strategic orientation for implementing their reforms in a way in which such a dynamic could be created, or would you perhaps argue that it was more the case that this was these were attempts to implement reforms? where the material conditions were always going to make it profoundly difficult to win? Um, yeah, well, a, a good question. I mean, um, so Gortz's notion of structural reforms, he's the theorist most associated with that term, although it was a, a phrase invented by Togliati, um, is that he, he, well, he makes a distinction between what he calls reformist reforms and not, not necessarily reformist reforms, or what he then later perhaps wisely renames as uh, as structural reforms or revolutionary reforms. Um, The former are the kinds of reforms that we associate with social democracy. So they're about ameliorating the system, but they're implemented in such a way that they are absolutely compatible with uh, the fundamental logic of that system. So they're not at all challenging for capitalism and they don't modify the relations of power between labour and capital. Um, a structural reform um, is it's a, it's a kind of reform that's implemented in a particular way. So for Gortz, uh, um, a, a revolutionary reform or structural, structural reform um, is, is a reform that's, that's implemented in such a way that it's intended to break the equilibrium of the system. Um, uh, it's meant to um, to, to, to modify uh, the relations of power uh, between uh, class forces. And uh, the key um, characteristic of uh, a structural reform for, for Gortz is that they necessarily modify um, or threaten to modify the relations of production. And so they, they must be about um, building up workers' power within, within uh, capitalism. So... What he comes back to time and time again in his writing at this this particular point is um, workers' control um, at the point of production uh, and, and setting up kind of democratic organs for controlling the labour process and making decisions about investment and making decisions about um, distribution. So what he imagines is um, a left government or a government under pressure from left forces implementing reforms that respond to immediate demands for people's needs, um, but which also substantially modify that sort of relation of power. And it would be things like um, not just nationalising key industries, for example, uh, but nationalising them under workers' control. 
um, or creating the space for new cooperative forms of, uh, you know, cooperative industries, uh, experiments in um, in workers' power and so on. Um, and what Gortz thinks is that um, these sorts of changes uh, build up a kind of counterpower from below, and they have um, they have an effect on. Um, the people's sort of um, calculus, the way that they, the way that the, the, the political horizons they have. So changing the way that people interact with each other and, and giving people a little bit of power to make decisions about uh, economic things, for example, um, he hopes can kind of create the conditions um, psychologically, economically, politically, um, for a further radicalization in that consciousness. Um, so he has a sort of a vision, and this was something that um, Kuvalakis was, was talking about too from the um, Syriza left platform, although without referring to Gortz, um, is that there's nothing guaranteed here, of course, but it opens up the possibility of a sort of um, a logic of permanent revolution. Um, so you sort of get the kind of cumulative strengthening of a mass movement from below um, which can for example put pressure on its leaders uh, in the in in the government um, to to push forward with more radical reforms and with that that process there's a sort of a building process of empowerment of that of that movement from below so you get this sort of virtuous dynamic of interaction between um, the democratic capacity building at the grassroots if you like of ordinary people demanding reforms from a government um, which will further empower that mass movement until the point comes when there's a sort of qualitative transformation, whatever that looks like. Polanski talks about a, a revolutionary rupture, you know, in which the structures of the state and that relationship between uh, government power and the people um, is transformed into something else. Um, but it's not a, a process that um, Gortz or Polanski thinks will happen um, without that initial uh, sort of process of dialectical interaction between a reforming government and uh, a, a gradually empowered mass movement from below, um, campaigning for immediate demands for you know things it needs in the here and now. What course is against is this idea that um, socialists should start from a vision of socialism and then seek to realise it. You know, we, we can't start by saying capitalism's bad, therefore we need socialism. Here's my vision of socialism, right? Let's find a way of getting there. What we need to do is to start from where people are uh, and to try to um, strengthen some kind of dynamic in which people learn themselves and build up the ability and the capacity themselves to uh, construct uh, that, that um, something beyond the system that we have right now. So this brings me on to the Labour Party. You mentioned the uh, the necessity of, of building up workers' institutions, um, cooperatives, and, and so on. Do you see Labour's policy platform and things such as the Alternative Models for Ownership report, does that to you look like the potential basis for just this kind of uh, struggle? Yeah, there's the potential there. Um... I, I think we're we're actually a long way away from that um, that that place in Britain at the moment. I mean, what I would 
expect from, let's say, a Corbyn government uh, would be something probably a lot less dramatic than that. Um, we're, 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 we're talking about, after all, um, a leadership which is, um, is, is, is talking about a programme that a few years ago would have been seen as, as, as quite mild. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, mild social democratic measures they're talking about. But that in itself is quite significant uh, these days because to insist on, you know, quite sensible things like taking public utilities, uh, taking utilities into public ownership, um, uh, like um, trying to um, control finance uh, uh, and, um, you know, um, just stopping austerity. These are, these are sensible measures um, that in themselves represent a real breach in the sort of there's no alternative narrative from neoliberalism. Uh, I suppose ideally, uh, and, and also given there is something different actually about Corbyn and, and, and the, the current Labour Party, which is that it, 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 much more than uh, previous leaderships, even the more relatively radical ones, uh, there is this um, openness uh, to... Um, grassroots mobilisation, so the you know momentum, for example, uh, and there's not much more of a sense in which there's a um, an openness to democratic engagement from below, and that, that's great, and that is something very different about Corbyn and McDonnell. Um, so there's 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 the, the potential that um, this sort of Gaussian dynamic of structural reform might emerge from that. Uh, I'm slightly dubious about that. I don't think that's probably on the agenda in Britain for the time being. But uh, who knows? And one of the, the possibilities that we need to start to engage with uh, much more seriously than I think we've been doing on the left actually is, um, you know, what happens if Corbyn is elected? Uh, what happens if he uh, sticks to his agenda? What sort of opposition is he likely to face? Um what kind of um, counterattack is he is he likely to come under? And I think it's going to be a lot more. You know what we're seeing at the moment. It's in, in terms of the various um, attacks and attempts to undermine him at the moment. It will be a lot more intense were he the prime minister, and it will also be back, be backed up by, you know, the 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 kind of the concrete power of capital, if you like, that sort of veto power that capital has over investment. There's a danger. I don't think it's inevitable, but there's a danger that we might be encroaching on something like um, metal territory. You know, the the early 1980s metal experiment, where a pretty radical government comes to power and it immediately faces capital flight, uh, some kind of investment strike, um, a run on the currency, and so on. And it's not um, it's not unlikely that that Corbyn might find himself under similar. Um, pressures and if that was to be the case and if there is a mobilized movement around Corbyn if there is a sort of a well-implanted um, support base for him of active members and active supporters it's conceivable that that kind of um, polarization and that sort of intense challenge might start to start to spark some sort of uh, logic of structural reform and maybe something similar to what the left platform in Greece were talking about. Um, but I think it's important not to get carried away right now in Britain because we're at the very early stages of this sort of process.
You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. You can follow the pod on Facebook and Twitter. It's at Poll Theory Other. If you like the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another show next week.